All right, good morning, everyone. My name is Rebecca. I'm one of the elders here at City Church, and I'm going to be bringing the message this morning. So just as a real quick recap, I want to go over kind of where we are, what series we're doing, and lay down a couple of ground definitions before we jump into today's message. So we are continuing to walk through our sermon series, Prologue to Messiah, looking at the ways that Jesus was prophesied and alluded to throughout the Old Testament. If you are interested in learning more about Messianic prophecy, which is a big fancy term for the ways that Jesus was alluded to and prophesied in the Old Testament, we are actually using JewsForJesus.org as kind of our main source material for this because nobody knows about how the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament better than the Jewish community. So that's what we're using as our resource. Feel free to check it out if you are curious and want to read more about it. So the overall purpose of this series and what we're hoping to communicate and convey as we move forward towards the Advent season is we want to first show that there is a progressive and intentional revealing of Messiah's nature and character throughout the timeline of scripture. And this goes from Genesis to Revelation. This isn't exclusive to the Old Testament, but we're focusing in on the Old Testament for this series. We also want to show how fallen creation still points to Christ in ways that creation may or may not understand perfectly. And then finally, demonstrate that God longs to be connected through his creation. And this is something that is consistent throughout scripture. Since we're talking about prophecy a lot, I want to make sure we're starting with the same definition of what prophecy is and lay down that as some groundwork. So when we talk about prophecy through this series, what we're talking about is a message from God to humans that was spoken through an assigned messenger. A couple of years ago, we did a series that worked through some of the Old Testament prophets. And so we talked about in that time how there is this idea of prophecy being like the mountaintop. So you can tell that this is the prophet because of his cloak because it says prophet there, right? Yeah. And so we talk about the prophet's message being like this picture of a mountaintop. So when God gives a message to his messenger, most of that message is focused on this mountaintop where the prophet is standing, right? So that's his own time or her own time, what they are speaking to the people around them, the specific message to the people around them that God has given them to share. But as a part of this picture, you have not just the mountaintop that the prophet is standing on, but there's also all these other mountain ranges kind of off in the distance. And so when God gave his prophets messages to bring to his people, there was a meaning for the people in that day, but then there was also sort of a in the distance, in the future kind of meaning that we're able to go back and pick up on now that we have a little more context for it. So like we talk about Isaiah, who had a message to bring to the people of his day, but there were also a lot of prophecies through there about Messiah. So those are some of the groundwork definitions, and today we are going through the greats part two. So a couple weeks ago, Jake walked through the greats part one, looking at some of the major figures in the Old Testament and in Jewish history and how they pointed towards Messiah, and we are continuing and finishing that today, looking at Elijah and David. So before we go any forward, let's go ahead and pray. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you have shown yourself throughout the entirety of your scriptures and throughout your creation. And I pray that you would give me your words to speak this morning as we talk about Elijah and David and these two major figures. And I also pray that you would give us eyes to see how you're continuing to reveal yourself in your creation today. In your name I pray. Amen. 
All right, so before we go through the specific prophecies uh, for these two major figures, I want to kind of lay some groundwork and talk about the stories of these two people as it is written in Scripture. So there's, obviously, I'm not going to read the entirety of their stories. David especially takes up like two and a half books of the Bible plus his Psalms, so I'm not going to read through all of that with you this morning. This is the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> but if you want to go back later, I've included the references for you. So if you want to go back and read through their entire life story, the Uncliff Notes version, it's there for you. So Elijah was a prophet that came to the people of Israel. And as a bit of context, so actually in 1 Kings 16, before Elijah comes onto the scene, the people in Israel divide in half. And there's the two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that have two separate kings. And so the king, one of those kings, his name was Omri, he overcame violently the people following the other king, and the Bible says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And then he died, and his son Ahab took over, and Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who went before him, including his father Omri. And this included um, a poor selection in wives. He married Jezebel, who the Bible says incited her husband to continue in ever more wicked ways. Not a good life partner to Jews. Uh, and then he also ended up um, in involving himself in some pagan idolatry. So he served Baal and worshipped Baal. And it says that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And Israel was kind of in a downward spiral through this time. So that's, that's saying something about the life of Ahab. And then onto the scene comes Elijah. And really all the background that we're given in 1 Kings is that he was Elijah, a Tishabite. And that's all we know. But he first comes onto the scene with a drought. So Elijah announces that there will be neither dew nor rain except by the word of Elijah speaking for God until he says that it will be so. And so then after he proclaims this to Ahab and to the people of Israel, God brings him into hiding by a brook, so he has a source of water, and then also ravens continue to bring him food to eat so that he has a way of sustenance and a way to continue living. After that, God brings him to a widow's house where he asks for a bit of water and for some food. I'm married to a man who has some farming experience, so I can tell you that in my expert knowledge, food can't grow without water. Whether you're talking about meat or plants, all of it needs water in order to provide food for us. So there's not a lot of food in Israel at this time. A drought is affecting the food supply. So when Elijah asked this widow for some food and some water, this is something that's on short supply. And so what the widow tells back to him is, you know, look, all I have left is a handful of flour and a handful of oil, and I was going to use it to make some bread for me and my son as our last meal, and then we were going to die. So Elijah tells her, okay, go ahead, do that, but bring me a little bit of it, and if you do that, then your flour and your oil will never go empty until the time that this drought is over. And it was so. So then after that, the son of the widow becomes ill. And the Bible says that his illness was so severe that there was no breath in him. And so the widow was pretty upset with Elijah, that he had saved her son, God had saved her son, only for him to then go ahead and die. And so Elijah took her son, prayed, and the Lord brought the child back to life. And after this, God called Elijah to go back to Ahab and confront him again. And so this begins a pretty interesting scene in the Old Testament. So the prophets of Baal and Asherah, which were two pagan idols that uh, Ahab was worshiping and following, met both Ahab and Elijah on this mountaintop. 
And Elijah threw down a challenge to prove once and for all who the true God of Israel was. Was it Yahweh or was it Baal? And so they prepared two bulls as sacrifices on the top of this mountain. And they decided that the challenge was each of them was going to call out to their respective gods to consume the sacrifice and see which one was able to do that. So the prophets of Baal went first, and they were limping around the altar for a few hours, and nothing was really happening. So Elijah starts calling out and mocking Baal. You know, hey, maybe he just needed a bathroom break. Maybe you should yell a little bit louder for him. So they do, and it says that they cut themselves until their blood is flowing all around this mountaintop and all around the sacrifice, and they continue to rave on, and nothing happened. So then it's Elijah's turn. And he goes and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord with the 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel. And he puts the bull on top of it and he prepares his wood. But that's not enough because he knows that Yahweh is the God of Israel. So he digs a trench all around the altar. And then he has people come and pour water on it until that trench that's around the, wa- around the sacrifice is completely full of water. And then he prays that God would show himself to be the true God of Israel and the entire thing was consumed with fire, even all the water. And after that, the drought ended and the rain came. Jezebel wasn't so happy that her prophets had been shown up in such a spectacular fashion. So after this, Elijah flees for his life to the wilderness where an angel of the Lord told him to eat to prepare for the journey that he was going through on a journey through the wilderness And so he ate a meal that lasted him for 40 days and 40 nights as he completed this journey. And this was the journey where he went to the mountain. And there's that episode where he's trying to hear the voice of God. And there's the the strong wind, the earthquake, and the fire. But God didn't speak out of any of those. He spoke out of the low whisper. And after this, Elijah met his successor, Elisha. And after a few more run-ins with Ahab and his family, Elijah ended up being taken up to heaven with chariots and fire and a whirlwind. He didn't actually die. He was taken up into heaven without dying in the process. So that is the life of Elijah the prophet. Now the next person that we're talking about is David. So David was the warrior king. He was the second king of Israel. And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart pretty big figure both in the Bible and in Jewish history. So he was this shepherd boy that was anointed as king by Samuel, and he was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. So A, he was a shepherd, and B, he was the youngest son of a man who was not king, so he was pretty much the last person that was expected to become the king of Israel. But after he was anointed by Samuel, The first king, Saul, he was having some mental health difficulties. So uh, David was able to play the lyre, which is kind of like a smaller version of the harp. And he was called into the court to play for the king and to help calm him when he was going through some of his um, episodes. And through this, he gained some favor, and he ended up becoming armor-bearer to Saul. And in 1 Samuel 16, Saul describes, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. There's a lot more episodes that we know David for. There's David and Goliath, right, where David killed the giant Goliath Philistine who was not respecting the word of the Lord and was not respecting God's people. He continued to have success after success in battle, and Saul became pretty jealous of that because the people liked David, and he was having a lot more success in battle than what Saul was. And so Saul actually tried to kill David multiple times, 
but David continued to serve in his court and continued to have military successes. And through all this, um, those, after those military successes against the Philistines, he actually ended up ultimately fleeing from Saul's attempts to take his life and becoming a mercenary soldier for the Philistines. So after um, some time, he had a couple of opportunities to kill Saul in there. Saul uh, pursued him and still continued to try to take his life, but he respected the current king of Israel, and he did not kill him. After the prophet Samuel died, Saul was going into battle against the Philistines, and he wanted to consult the Lord and to know whether or not he was going to have success in this battle. And he wasn't really able to hear back from God, so he ended up going to a medium and asking her to resurrect the spirit of Samuel to ask if he was going to have the Lord's success in battle. Which, if it sounds pretty convoluted to you and not something that the king of Israel should be doing, you're right. That is exactly what the king of Israel should not be doing. And if you contrast that with David, so before this same battle, David, a mercenary soldier for the Philistines, shows up to fight for the battle. The Philistines, understandably, aren't so thrilled about having someone they're paying to fight for them who is actually originally from the people who they are going to battle against, so they end up sending David back to where he had been staying. And when David goes back, he discovers that his town has been plundered, uh, the women and the children have been taken captive, and so what the Bible says is he strengthens himself in God and consults God. And in contrast to Saul, David is told, he hears from God directly, and is told to go ahead, he will have success, and to go into battle. So, after, so he ends up going and overtaking the people who had captured the women and children and being able to rescue them. So after this, Saul dies. David becomes king of Judah because he was not who was supposed to inherit the throne, even though he had been anointed into the throne. There's some battle that ensues between the house of Saul and the house of David. David ends up victorious, and David is officially anointed king over Israel. And David continues to be a mighty warrior. He continues in that. He continues to expand the kingdom and consult God before every battle, even down to the strategy of the battle. But he's not perfect. There are some episodes that show that while he, he was on base and a man after God's own heart, there are a couple of ways that he fell short. One of those is when he tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant back without actually going through the, the process that's outlined for transporting the Ark. And there's good intent there, but bad execution. Uh, and then he tells God that he wants to build a temple for him because he feels guilty that he as king is living in this palace, but God doesn't have a, a house to dwell in. He's still dwelling in the tabernacle, the tent that they had carried through the wilderness with him. And God tells him that it won't be him that will actually build the temple. It'll be one of his descendants that does. And the Lord continued to give victory to David wherever he went. So there were continued military successes. And then we come to the episode with Bathsheba, right? So David is gazing out over the rooftops of his city at a time when kings are normally off at war. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. He ends up getting her pregnant. He tries to bring her husband back so that it looks like it's actually her husband's kid. Her husband is honorable, says, no, I'm a soldier. This isn't this is the time of battle. This is not the time for that. So David schemes to get her husband killed so that he can marry Bathsheba himself and to cover up what he did. This was not looked upon kindly by God, and so the son that they had ended up dying. Uh, and then uh, David repented, and David and Bathsheba ended up having another son, Solomon, who ended up being the one to build the temple of the Lord. 
Now, there's plenty of other episodes in David's history. I'll leave you to read over them uh, yourself. But those are kind of the major highlights of his life. So now that we've gone over their stories, we're going to go through more of the prophecy. Honey, can you hand me my water bottle? Thank you. And we're going to start in with Elijah the prophet. So just like Jake did, I'm going to kind of go through what they were known for in Hebrew culture, the Christ prophecy, the fulfillment, and then how they were not the Messiah. So what Elijah is known for in his place in Hebrew culture, he was a prophet that rebuked Israel and her leaders for pagan idolatry. And then he's viewed as this ultimate end-of-time authority. And some of this comes from the prophecy that we're going to go through in a minute. But he is seen in Hebrew culture as the one who will come back at the end of time and settle all disputes. So he will come back if there's a theological dispute, something that's not clear from the holy books. Elijah will come back and he will resolve it. If there's any kind of other disputes that are going on, Elijah will come back and resolve it. And then he's also seen as the one who will resurrect the dead at the end of history. And so there's this this Hebrew word for a tie or for a hung jury or a a locked decision where you can't make make a decision, and it's teku, and it's actually an acrostic for the Tishabite will resolve difficulties and problems. So the way I picture this is, you know, they're, they're fighting it out in the synagogue over what this holy text actually means, and then the, the rabbis are like, yeah, take you, take you, take you. You know, what color should we make our carpet in our church? And the Tishabite will resolve it. Don't worry about it, guys. The Tishabite will, will resolve it. I love Jewish culture. And then there's also, Elijah plays a pretty big role in the Passover. So every year at the Passover meal, there's a specific place that's laid out for Elijah. And then typically one of the children will be the ones that goes and opens the door to invite Elijah in and see if he's there waiting for them. And kind of the, the theory behind that is that if Elijah comes, then the Messiah cannot be far behind. And so every year they do this as a way to look forward to Messiah. So when we look at the actual prophecy, this comes from Malachi 4, 5 through 6. And it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, which is where that ultimate end of time authority comes in. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So kind of the notion that prevailed at the time of the origin of Christianity was that Elijah's mission was as forerunner of the Messiah, and it consisted mainly in changing the mind of the people and leading them to repentance. So as we're looking at the coming of the Messiah and what we know from the New Testament, who does this sound like? Who was the forerunner to Christ who came to bring repentance to the hearts of the people? John the Baptist, right. So as we look at the fulfillment, we're going to look mostly at John the Baptist being the fulfillment of this prophecy about Elijah, specifically in the time of Christ. And we don't know what this is going to look like in the future. If at the second coming, Elijah will also come back and be a part of that forerunning to the second coming of Christ, is part of those distant mountaintops. And if Honestly, if the people, if the religious leaders of Jesus' age didn't know how to properly interpret all the prophecies of Messiah, I can't say that I'm going to be able to perfectly interpret the prophecies of what is still to come. So in Matthew 11, 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send your, my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And so then we also have Mark 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. So people were thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to life. Herod was the one who killed John the Baptist. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like the ones of old. In Mark 9, so this, um, you know how Elijah was taken up into heaven and didn't actually die? He was taken up in the whirlwind. So then we come back to Mark 9 and we look at the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had, been risen, had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, Teku. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them, of him. And then Luke 1. So this is actually uh, the birth, the angel foretelling the birth of John the Baptist. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." So we see John the Baptist is doing that work of Elijah, that redemption, that resolving of difficulties, and that bringing the, the hearts of the people back to repentance, preparing them for then Jesus coming. So as we look at the ways that he's not the Messiah, scripture is pretty clear. John the Baptist, Elijah, not the Messiah. But they're the prophet, the messenger, that comes before Messiah to prepare the, way, the hearts of the people for Messiah to come back. So that's Elijah. Now it's time to turn to David, the warrior king. So what he's known for in his place in human or in Hebrew culture 
he was the warrior king. He was the second king who really did a lot of expansion of the territory of Israel, and he's kind of viewed as the model king of Israel throughout the scriptures. Um, he's also, you know, the man that was after God's own heart, and we see not only his, the story of his life, but we also have uh, his psalms, and we have some of his poetry and his art in the psalms as well. So there's two different prophecies around David and the Messiah. The first is that Messiah is a descendant of David, and this is from 2 Samuel 7. So this is the Lord talking to David through Nathan at this point. Yeah? Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's kind of a big deal to have a lineage and a throne that will last forever. Probably not talking about actual human sons in this case, because having one that will last forever is something that is highly unlikely when you're looking at the history of royalty. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here we have that father-son relationship between God the Father and the descendants of David who will end up establishing his throne and his lineage. And so the second prophecy that comes, not only will the Messiah be a descendant of David, but this is important, the Messiah will be greater than David. So you have David, this warrior king, this awesome and amazing model king figure in Hebrew culture, and it is very important that the Messiah, while the son of David, will also be greater than David. And so we see this in Psalms 110, which is David's own writing. And in the Psalms that come before, so Psalm 107 through 109, are these prayers and these hope for redemption. And then you have in the middle Psalm 110, which has this messianic prophecy. And then afterwards, Psalms 111 through 113 offer praise for the redemption. So you have this anticipation of redemption, this prayer for redemption, the prophecy about Messiah, and then the praises for redemption that come after it. And in this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Also important in here, not only that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, David is calling Messiah greater than him because he's referring to him as Lord. But then also that last line in verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is described in Genesis 14, and he is the only person before Christ to be able to fulfill both the role of king and priest. And that's important. Because in Jewish culture, you had this separation between the people who were the political leaders, the kings, and the people who were the religious leaders and the priests. And because they were from different tribes, they, they could not be the same person other than Melchizedek and then Christ as the Messiah. 
so when we look at the fulfillment, we've got those two parts again. So first being a descendant of David, uh, we're gonna go through a little bit of the lineage. So both of the genealogies for Christ that are listed in the New Testament have him being traced back to David. There's two different sort of tracings of genealogy, and some of the theory behind that is one might be from Mary's side and one might be from uh, Joseph's side, but either way, both of them go through David. And then there's also several times in the New Testament where Christ is referred to as the son of David as well. So first, we'll go through Luke 1, and this is actually when the angel is talking to Mary uh, before she comes pregnant with Jesus. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All allusions back to the promise that God made to David. And then when we look at the, both the genealogy and then some of the examples of where Jesus is called the son of David, so Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a really short and sweet genealogy there. It goes through the longer version after that. And then in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 23, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Looking at how the Jewish people thought that, thought from these prophecies that Jesus was going, the Messiah was going to be the son of David, it's no wonder they expected him to come back and throw a political coup. You had this son of the warrior king that was coming back as Messiah, and they really thought that when Messiah came back, he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and lead them victorious to be the victors instead of the captives. That is not how Jesus came the first time, right? And so it's, it's again, it's one of those ways I can't pretend that I can perfectly understand how prophecy is going to work out, because even the relig religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't completely understand, creation doesn't completely understand all of the foretellings of Messiah and everything that God is, was saying through these people. So looking at how Messiah would be greater than David, there's a couple of different times throughout the New Testament where the portion from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, is repeated and is said about Jesus as part of the Messianic prophecy. One of those is Matthew 22 where Jesus had the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the experts on the law and the Old Testament together. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, because he had stumped them. And in Acts 2, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 15, so this is Paul writing and explaining this to the Corinthian church. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Here comes the warrior king. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is where that warrior king comes in. He hasn't come yet. The way that Jesus came the first time wasn't as the warrior king, but it's coming, I think. So then as we look at the ways that, that Jesus is greater than David. Another one of those things was that Jesus not only has the human right to reign as the king over Israel, but he also has an additional right to reign as the, the religious king over Israel because he was both human and divine. He has the right to reign both in his humanity as a son of David and as part of that lineage and part of that throne, but he also has the divine right to reign because Israel ultimately reported not just to their king, but also to God. And this is going into that priest in the order of Melchizedek, that Christ was able to fulfill both that human reign and the divine reign because he was able to be our high priest as the son of God. So in Hebrews 4 and 5, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So as we see the ways that David was uh, a foreshadowing of the Messiah, and we look at the fulfillment of that, we can also see pretty clearly that he was not the Messiah, right? Unlike Christ, he didn't live a perfect, sinless life. We have the episode with Bathsheba. We have him attempting to bring back the ark the wrong way. There were a lot of other episodes within him and his family that happened throughout where his life is described. He was not the Messiah. And that's one of the ways that the Messiah is also greater than, than what David was. 
So as we wrap it all up and we look back at the purpose of this series and what we're really trying to communicate, we see that progressive and intentional revealing of Messiah's nature through both the lives and the prophecies surrounding Elijah and David. And as we look at especially the life of Elijah, because we talk about how he's not the Messiah and how um, John the Baptist coming back was as uh, a foreshadowing and the forerunner of Christ and the messenger that was preparing the hearts of the people for Christ. But there's also a lot of similarities in the life and ministry of Elijah and the life and ministry of Christ. So, you know, you have Elijah's main mission being that prophetic rebuke for pagan idolatry. And then you have Christ coming in and calling out the religious leaders of his day for the ways that they were not actually following God. You have the miracles. You have that multiplying of the oil and the flour for the widow. And then you also have the multiplying of the fish and the loaves for the, to feed the people that came to hear his, Christ's message. You have um, the way that Elijah raised the widow's son and then the way that Christ raised that young girl that had passed. And you both have both of them having this period of 40 days and 40 nights where they were fasting in the wilderness and weren't eating. You also, with David, we kind of talked about this already, it's, it's no wonder the Israelites expected this military leader in Messiah to come back and to conquer the Romans and overcome everything. And we have how Messiah has that, that rightful throne over Israel, both in his humanity and in his deity. So we see that kind of Christ came back as the greater David, and John came as the greater Elijah, but there's still this foreshadowing, and we don't know what's still to come at kind of the end of time. In both of these men, fallen creation still pointed back to God and still pointed back to Christ in ways that they didn't understand perfectly. And we can see how God longs to be connected to his creation. So Jake's going to come forward with the communion, and as he does so, let's go ahead and let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you reveal yourself through your imperfect creation and your imperfect people. And I pray that we would continue to see the ways that, that you reveal yourself around us and that we would be looking for you throughout this week. And that you would give us the humility to know that um, we're not going to see you perfectly this side of heaven. And we won't perfectly understand things this side of heaven. And I thank you for that. In your name I pray. Amen. <laughs>